0: Stay tuned after the show for a message from Chevron. This is Politico Energy. I'm Annie Snyder. The summer of 2021 has changed the way Canadians think about climate change and their sense of urgency about fighting it. Dozens of people in the Vancouver area of Western Canada have died in an unprecedented heat wave. A
1: catastrophic fire has virtually obliterated the village of Lytton, B.C., the same community that earlier this week set an all-time heat record in this country.
2: Edmonton, like much of Western Canada, has been blanketed in smoke from wildfires in B.C., Alberta, and Saskatchewan, prompting Environment Canada to issue air quality warnings throughout the region.
0: Now, these climate-driven weather events come during the run-up to Canada's national election, which takes place later this month. And for the first time in a Canadian election, multiple candidates are presenting climate change policies as part of their pitch to voters. But will any of those policies be enough? And will the next Canadian government follow through?
2: Well, for climate, Canada hasn't really had a good reputation on meeting climate targets. Canada has actually failed to meet any climate targets for the past 30 years.
0: Today, Politico Canada reporter zee Ann Lum on the role climate change is playing in Canada's upcoming federal election. It's Thursday, September 9th. Zian, you've reported that the events of this past summer have changed the way that Canadians think about climate change and the urgency around it.
2: What's been happening? Yeah, climate issues have been very visceral for Canadians this year, and what we saw happen in the town of Linton this summer is one of the most uh, dramatic examples that come to my mind. Uh, For listeners who don't know, Linton is a village about with about two hundred and fifty people in the province of British Columbia, and it saw temperatures hit a record-breaking 49.5 degrees Celsius or 121.1 degrees Fahrenheit. On June 29th, the whole village was burned down by a wildfire the very next day. So basically an example of a worst-case scenario in the Venn diagram where drought and wildfire risks intermix. And also, you know, this year there was that heat dome in the Pacific Northwest, and for Canada in British Columbia, that heat dome was also linked to about, it's north of 800 sudden deaths, uh, which is about at least triple the normal rate.
0: So all of this is taking place during the run-up to a national election. How big of an issue is climate change in that election? And can you tell us a little bit about where Trudeau and his challenger
2: stand in terms of climate proposals? Right now... The parties are still debating kind of perennial wedge issues. We're talking about guns right now. We're talking about abortion. Uh, The climate piece isn't really uh, first and foremost. So what's interesting here is that the liberals, they increased their emissions reductions target under Paris from 30 to 40 to 45 percent over 2005 levels before 2030. And the Conservatives are basically presenting, you know, a pledge to roll back that promise, to bring it back to the old target, which is problematic because one of the first major international meetings for Canada will be the COP26 climate conference in Glasgow in November. And if the Conservatives form government, they're basically you know making their debut on the international stage saying like, you know, we're going to roll back climate ambitions in an era where we should be increasing climate emissions. So that's kind of problematic. So,
0: so yeah, you you mentioned the upcoming climate talks uh, beginning in November. It sounds like there's a variety of you know proposals, and depending on the election, it, it will we'll see where Canada goes in terms of what it brings to that. But give us just a little bit of history here about the role that Canada has played thus far on the international stage.
2: Well, for climate, uh, Canada hasn't really had a good reputation on meeting climate targets. Canada has actually failed to meet any climate targets for the past thirty years. Crude oil production is actually slated to increase till 2040, which is an interesting contrast in this era where Canada is under pressure to increase its climate ambitions. So we have a lot of lofty promises to hit these really ambitious climate targets, yet we have a pretty healthy, still healthy uh, oil and gas sector uh, currently operating for the next uh, 20 years as well.
0: Well, it sounds like uh, some similar tensions to what we have here in the U.S. with respect to our oil sector. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about the sort of political tensions around that or the political importance of that sector, you know, thinking of jobs and the economy versus the the climate impacts of it? How has that played politically in Canada?
2: Yeah, it's very politically fraught because of the impact on jobs, well, the historical impact on jobs in trade and regional economies. So, the oil and gas sector contributes about just over five percent to the national GDP, but that has a different proportion when you break it down provincially. Uh, in the heart of Canada's oil and gas sector in Alberta, the oil and gas sector contributes about twenty percent provincially to Alberta's GDP, and in the east, it can. About 25% for the province of Newfoundland and Labrador. But what's also interesting is um, a lot of politicians like to argue that the oil and gas sector is responsible for a lot of jobs, hundreds of thousands of jobs. But those jobs are changing um, because of automation and a lot of the The facilities that have come online in the past decade. So that kind of jobs creation argument that is forwarded by some politicians is quite dated. So that's another interesting aspect to keep in mind as well. Well, thanks so much for
0: talking us through all of this, Ian. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Also, the physical effects of climate change, think flooded buildings, disrupted supply chains, and the loss of human life could pose a $250 billion-a-year risk to the largest U.S. banks. That's what Ceres, a sustainable investor network, found in its latest report. Coastal flooding, like that caused by Hurricane Ida, represented the largest source of direct risk. But the group found that two-thirds of banks' physical risk comes from the indirect economic impacts of climate change. That includes things like supply chain disruptions and lower productivity. Moving forward, the network said banks should conduct climate stress tests and take a page from insurers by collecting granular, asset-level data about exposure. For context, climate change threatens homes, businesses, crops, and lives, but studies show that financial markets have yet to price in the risks. For more news on energy and the environment, subscribe to our newsletter at politico.com backslash morning energy. If you like our show, then like it. Leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. It helps more people find the show. Also, here's a sneak peek of our newest Politico podcast, Global Insider, which launches on September 15th. Senior EU correspondent Ryan Heath takes you up close and personal with the world's most powerful people. For Politico, I'm Annie Snyder. Talk to you tomorrow.
1: Yep, we're rolling. I'm Ryan Heath, and for seven years, I've been writing a newsletter about global affairs, covering the CEOs who shaped the economy, the lawmakers who set the rules, and the innovators who bend them. In that time, I've gotten to know a lot of them and their world pretty well.
2: What do you think the longest pause is someone's ever taken when you've asked them like a really hard question?
1: Oh, that's easy. Um, it was Emmanuel Macron. And I asked him when was the last time he'd built a piece of IKEA furniture. and. The dude could not answer the question. I think Tony Blair certainly flirts with his eyes.
0: Is there an airport
2: tip you have?
1: There is an amazing bakery at Copenhagen Airport called Hakas <laughs> I can never say it right. <laughs> now I'm doing a different kind of interview with the same sources I've kept tabs on for years, more personal conversations that usually happen behind closed doors in Davos and the UN. Is it just something that you have to accept as out of your control now? Of course I'm worried. We're doing this in a pandemic. We all have to be worried. Every week, there'll be activists, regulators, business leaders, like NATO's Jens Stoltenberg and Linda Thomas-Greenfield, the US ambassador to the UN. African leaders need to spend more time with their young people, and they need to empower them to lead in the future. The balance of power is always shifting. Global Insider is how you keep up. We launch September 15th. in this feed. See you there. Laukehusa. (laughs) we, My my humans not robots, so I can't make it sound like the robot.
0: Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Chevron's El Segundo refinery is looking to turn plant-based oil into renewable gasoline, jet, and diesel fuels. Because it's only human to want to power a better future. Learn more at chevron.com slash lowercarbon.